First timers? How many of you guys are first timers? Any first timers? All right, nice, good. This is for the first timers. We'll kind of go through the introduction of what freedom ministry is and what it's about, but I'm going to do it quicker than usual. So if you veterans think I missed something, stop me and tell me what I've missed. Freedom ministry here at Gateway Church is um, our, our response to what I might call an intensive discipleship process. And specifically what we believe is that transformation, it should be the natural outgrowth of, of following Jesus, of becoming a believer in Jesus. And yet often that's not what happens. And in fact, you know, you've heard all kinds of different things that people have said or, or talked about is that, you know, I, they either became a Christian or know someone who's a Christian and they look and go, how come they act just like everybody else? Or how come they can't seem to gain control over this in their life or whatever, whatever? Well, we, we believe that just some helpful discipleship will help with that. Is that Sound right, Mike? So, perfect. And so what, what we've done is we've really looked at a couple different things. And, you know, his, history, and I always, this is the part where it's hard for me to go quick because I like to, would like to ask questions of people. But um, there's been multiple different movements that we've tried to kind of pull the best of and spit out the, the worst of and, and come up with what we think is what the Lord's got for us to do here. And so depending on what stream you've come from and what background you've come from and what you know, religious persuasion you've come from. Uh, we are not a deliverance ministry. Um, it, and if you don't know what I mean when I say a deliverance ministry, just kind of go, ooh, good, I'm glad I don't know what that is, because anyway. But, um, and the point would not be to, anyway, the point would be that here's what we think. A lot of times when people think about freedom, they think of it in terms of what they wish they could change. And so they think, you know, I've got this bad habit, I've got this thought process, I've got this emotional thing in my life, and I wish I could change it, then I would be free. So we think about freedom in terms of now that I'm not angry anymore, I'm free. Or now that I'm not, you know, doing such and such on the internet or yelling at my kids or whatever it might be, now that I'm not doing that, I'm free. And here's the thing is I, I looked through this pretty well and I couldn't find in here where it said that in the absence of something there is freedom. What, um, you know, a lot of times what the old-time deliverance ministries would say is if you just get the demons out of people, then they'll be free. And it really does help. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not dismissing the, the value of that. What I'm saying is that it still doesn't say in here anywhere that in the absence of demons there is freedom. Here's, I, could, I found two definitions in here for freedom, and so we've really tried to base our response to that on these two definitions. The first one is, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the question is, where is the Spirit of the Lord? Well, if you're born again, the Spirit of the Lord is first and foremost inside you. My question to all of us is, how far inside of you have you let him get? So where the Spirit of the Lord is, Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, but there might be some hidden places in your heart that he'd like to go that he's not gotten to yet. So the second thing that we've found is that we've discovered that it says in here that you can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here's what we've done. We've designed a process because we think that, again, sometimes historically what people have done is they've said, if you can just have this, uh, well, here's, here's the way I heard it when I first got here. You're the new freedom guy. It's okay. I went through deliverance 10 years ago. And um, I'll, I'll probably refrain from saying most of the, most of the things that I think, but you know, a lot of times people will define that 10 years ago I had an experience, therefore I'm free. Here's what I know. Two weeks ago I had an experience. I need something tomorrow. It's, it's, I think of it like taking a shower. 
visual people try to refrain from what, you know, where your mind's going with that. But essentially, the way I think of it is this. Yesterday, I took a shower, but I'll probably take one again tomorrow. And I'll probably take one again tomorrow. Why? Because we live in a world where I get dirty. And if we live in a world where the nature of the world is that it's fallen, what we need to do is develop a lifestyle of freedom instead of searching for moments and and experiences that will define as freedom, but then we'll let them pass 5, 10, 15 years and say that we're free because 15 years ago we had that experience. Uh, you know, maybe I can't keep all of these things from coming out of my mouth, but sometimes people will say, well, I went, you know, I had, I got free 10 years ago, and if that's the last thing they went through, I'll say, well, that's fine. I'm glad you got free from that, but now you're in bondage to immaturity. It's going to be a tough crowd tonight. Okay. <laughs> But the, the point being that we've really, we really believe in a discipleship process, a lifestyle of freedom. And so what we've tried to do is try to provide for you a process and not just a moment. The process consists of at least four different parts, most of which will be kind of evidence to you on the schedule. Now, this is a tough time of year to say this. Hey, Randolph, what's going on? Are you with us? Nice. All right. Well, most of what we have is at least noted somewhere on the schedule. The problem is we're getting to the end of the year. The last two years, we discovered that when December hits, people stop coming to Monday night classes and Wednesday night classes, for that matter. They start going to Christmas parties. We thought about doing a class called Freedom from Christmas Parties, <laughs> but nobody came. So we just did a Christmas party instead. Anyway, come December, we're done, which really means come the weekend of Thanksgiving, we're done until January. So if you're just new to this, please put a bookmark somewhere, tie something around your finger, put a sign on the refrigerator, you know, set a bomb to go off, whatever you need to do to remind yourself in January that we start back up again. Because the, the, um, the four things we offer are two sets of classes, our Kairos ministry and our group's ministry. So I want to talk you through those four pieces and then we'll start into tonight's class. The, the classes look like this. On Monday nights, we offer four different foundation classes. So each Monday that you would come, other than December, each Monday that you would come, we offer these foundation classes. The first one is a class called the Kingdom of God. And when I say first one, doesn't mean you're out of order if this is your first one tonight. It just means in order of thought process. The first one is a class called the Kingdom of God. And as best as we know, Mike, I'd love your opinion on this, but as best as we know, the class called the Kingdom of God is kind of a blueprint of God's big picture plan. That, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, can you guys tell he's on payroll here? So, uh, but that's supposed to be kind of a big picture view of of God's plan for the unfolding creation. Well, the other class is a more of a man's eye view. You like how I made that one out of wood because you know the heavens all sparkly and men are more like trees. Anyway, so the class called Levels of Change is more of a human's eye view or a man's eye perspective. How many of you guys have done that class? levels of change okay only a couple of you okay if, if you would a couple of you is that helpful in terms of your experience of trying to change your life is that class helpful see somebody besides mike spoke up so thank you very much so um that class is really kind of a rubber meets the road if you've been trying to change some things in your life that one will explain to you maybe some of the obstacles that you've run into and why it's been difficult. But more importantly, that class should explain to you how to overcome some of those obstacles. So, and then the class called, which would have been last week's class called Hearing God, that class is designed to recognize how does God communicate the reality of his kingdom into the human experience. And then tonight's class, a class called Life in the Kingdom, is about our response to God's communication into our lives. 
Now, if you had never seen this slide before, this may be a whole new thought process to you, that there's actually method to our madness. There's structure to the reasons why we do the foundations we do. And then on Wednesday nights, we do topical classes that are based on these foundations. Here's what I want you to catch. This is, this is the part that if you catch this truth, you'll recognize the lie that keeps people from making the next step in their journey. Here's the lie. What this lie is, is that this says that your death has more power to set you free than the death of Jesus. It doesn't even make logical sense, does it? I mean, you hear that and you go, well, that would be arrogant of me to think that. Yes, it would. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness. His death, his resurrection, and the advent of the Holy Spirit has given us everything we need today to live in freedom. Am I saying we should all be perfect from this day forward? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is in every given moment, we have the opportunity to choose spirit-controlled living. That's what I'm saying. Just understand, his death has more power to set you free than yours. All right? That makes sense? All right. This thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, last time I saved this for the end of class, I'm watching the timing and thinking, I'm going to do that again tonight. So we're going to move ahead and come back to this and do this last. Just remember, it's under the transformation section, and I'm just going to kind of drive my way through it. We'll talk about this thing called authority. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sometimes. Her question is that the last thing we talked about, that fallacy that my death will set me free, is that the thing that suicidal people are wrestling with? And that is often the case. You know, can't speak for everybody, but I think that's often the case, yes. It's also this idea that we have that, you know, we're just, we're always, I hear people say, we're always going to struggle while we're here on earth. And I think, are we? I mean, we can, but do we have to? Always? Anyway, I just don't think we always have to struggle while we're here on earth. So, all right. Yeah. Well, here's, here's what gets us in trouble, is we've assumed some things because of the past experience of the church instead of by looking at the scripture. You know, I, if, if Peter says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, then what that means is he's given us everything now for life and godliness that we can overcome in this present age. And so, anyway, yeah. All right, that's... I'll say, I just see a bunch of question marks. Anyone want to turn that into a question instead of a stare? <laughs> no? All right, going once. I think it's 2 Peter 1. All right, let's talk about authority. Authority is delegated power. Understanding the difference between these two things, I think, can help us in both areas. Power is, I think this is what's next up there, power is the strength or the ability to affect. Authority is delegated power. So, so power is, let's think of it in these terms. Does a policeman have the power to stop a car? Yes. 
No. A 4,000-pound block of cement has the power to stop a car. A policeman has the authority to stop a car. Because somebody in Austin has granted him the authority actually to stop the driver, not the car. Somebody in Austin has granted him the authority to use the power of the state of Austin, or the state of Texas. Maybe they're, maybe they're going to secede now that... No, never mind. Come back, Bob. Um, somebody in the capital of Texas has given the policeman the authority to issue a ticket, and that authority stops the driver, which then stops the car. Power is something has the ability to stop the car from moving. The authority the policeman has, he doesn't have power, he has authority. Does this differentiation make sense to everybody? And so the authority given us as believers is, is, a, is exactly like this. Our part of it is to exercise it. Now imagine this for a second. I'm a policeman, and I'm standing in you know, the place I've been designated, and I've got the authority to stop cars, and the cars are coming that are supposed to stop, and I go, boy, I hope they stop. Uh, you know, I call the, the, the headquarters and say, hey, would you get the cars to stop? Um, they're coming now. And they go, no, I delegated that to you. In other words, if the policeman doesn't go, stop, and, and gesture and do the thing he's supposed to do. If we don't do our part in authority, what we're going to find out is, once again, we're asking God to do something that's our part. Our part of authority is to exercise it. His part, then, is to be the power that backs it up. He empowers what we begin. He's looking for us. Again, Robert did a great job of teaching this in the power of we, that we begin something, he's going to show up and back it up. Let me um, talk about this for a second in the area of, of praying for the sick. And just give you an illustration of this. Um, my, my daughter, we were on a trip together um, to see Switchfoot in Moonlight Beach in California. I'm looking for like recognition. You know what I'm talking about? Every year they do the, the Bro-Am Surf Tournament. It was her dream to go out. This has nothing to do with my story, so let me just get on to the story. Anyway, the two of us went to California together and... Um, <clears throat> We you know, rent the car, and we're, the day of the big event comes, and we have donuts and Starbucks, and she gets in the car, and she slams her finger in the door. And she's, oh, I know it hurts so much. And I'm, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm driving down the street. And she goes, Dad, aren't you in charge of the healing ministry at Gateway? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, I am, honey. Why do you ask? And so she said, would you pray for my finger? I was like, okay. Here's what we teach our ministry teams in the healing ministry. The first thing you do is you ask God what he's doing, and then you listen. And then you agree with what he's doing. You say back to him what he's saying. So I'm driving down you know, the beach highway there in Encinitas, and I grab her finger while I'm driving, and I'm watching traffic lights and listening for the Lord's voice, going, Lord, what are you saying about her finger? Now, I didn't hear a darn thing. Didn't hear a thing. Except, here's what I know. I know that Jesus said this to us. I've given you authority. And so here's what I said. Pain and inflammation, submit now to the Lord Jesus and leave my daughter's finger. And she goes, oh, it doesn't hurt anymore. All I'm telling you is there's a difference between asking. I didn't call Austin and say, would you get, you know, would you get this pain to stop? I told it to submit. You, you hear the difference? 
So authority is something that if a lot of times when we're praying for people with a physical condition or any other condition, sometimes we're asking God to do something and he's saying, you do your part. I'll back it up. Exercise the authority that I gave you. Listen, it goes all the way back to the garden. What is it that God told Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden? Take dominion over creation. Our assignment hasn't changed. Now, Listen, you can make all kinds of generalizations about what that means about sickness. Please don't. Okay? I'm telling you one story. I've got several others where I took all the authority I, I knew and nothing changed. I'm not going to tell you those stories to illustrate my point, right? Okay. So, but what I want you to understand is there's a difference between asking God, will you please, versus understanding he's given me the authority to take dominion in a given moment. And a lot of times we're asking God for something that he's going... I, Gave you the authority to do that. You go, I'm with you. So just put that where you want to put that and try it out in the days ahead. Here's what Jesus said. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. You understand that's not insects and snakes, right? Okay. Yeah, it can be that too. I mean, it can be the physical realm. Uh, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, the, what he's saying is this. He's given us authority. What, what's given him... He's given to us. He's given us that authority. Now, so I want you to understand some things about exercising authority in the, in the realms in which we live. The first thing is, authority is a gift from God. He gave it to you. You didn't earn it. As children, it's your birthright. And often what I see people doing is going, if I can just earn it enough, then I can practice it. Just hold your hand up and say, stop. He, it's a gift. He gave it to you. It's also a gift that we can exercise if we know we have it. If you don't know you have it, <laughs> sorry, I, um, just stories pop in my mind. I have authority over them. I can either say them or not, right? I, um, in my counseling practice, there were a few different counselors that I trained in some of the other areas that they didn't learn in grad school, like you know deliverance and things like that. And so I've got this licensed counselor sitting next to me, and I'm, I'm training her how to get demons out of people. And so, I, you know, we kind of brought the person to their point of repentance and to, to dealing with their part of their, their captivity. And so I, I look and, and I had shown her a couple different times and I looked at her, I said, now, now you take authority. And so here's what she did. She goes, okay, would you come out now? Would you please come out now? Okay, don't do that anymore. Would you come out now? <laughs> I did you understand that's not authority, right? What I'm, well, the point is, I'm just saying, she, and by the way, she's a good friend of mine, and she's, doing, she's very effective these days, but at the, her first time ever, she's like, she didn't really know she had authority. Let me, let me bring this into the earthly realm for a second. How many of you guys have had kids? You ever try to get a three-year-old to comply? You know that you can't negotiate with a three-year-old, right? You need to exercise your authority over a two- and three-year-old. You can't go would you please stop hitting your sister now? I mean, you can, but the likelihood of that taking any effect is, is pretty null with a two-year-old. You have to say, in my name, you know, you don't go, in my name, stop pestering your sister. You just say, stop pestering your sister. And they understand that you're, you have the right to back up what you're saying. Okay? You have to know that you have authority. As soon as you argue with a three-year-old, you've already lost as soon as you question your authority, you've already given it away. I, I'm not talking about working up some frenzy of emotion. I'm just saying, understand, 
Who's in charge? Who has the right to be in charge in a given setting? All right? So we have to know that we have authority. We have to believe that we have it. And it's some, very similar to the same thing. We just have to rest in our heart in this idea that we have authority. And here's a key. We have to be under authority. I, I wish church people understood this better. I guess we're sitting here. We should talk about it, right? <laughs> you, you understand that the reason the policeman on the street has the authority he has is because there's a hierarchical, hierarchical system that goes all the way up to some top cop somewhere, and it's transmitted from the state to the county, from the county to the city, from the city to the, to the beat guy out there on the streets so that he can do that. And as long as they're all lined up, now listen, he can get out from under authority and probably pull over a car, but if he's doing it out from under the authority that's over him, at some point he's going to pay a price for it. Does this make sense? Because as long as everyone stays lined up under authority, then they have the authority to exercise the authority. Authority is simply a system to transmit power from its source to its, to its intended location. And as long as I'm submitted to authority, listen, here's what happens to us. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know this about any of you in this room, so I can just pretend I know nothing. I, you know, we have people that we, people come from all kinds of different churches and they want to be a part of the ministry that we, that we do here. And they want to tell me how to do it. I'm okay with that because I don't know all the answers. But what they what sometimes happen is they demonstrate to me that they don't really understand the concept of authority by saying, you don't know how to do this, I do, let me tell you. That's different than, you hear the difference? The difference from, um, hey, I've got an idea, can we talk about it, is I'm going to put myself over you even though God's put you over me. Does that make sense to everybody? And that's a terrible example because it probably doesn't really, is it a good one? Yeah. Here's what happens. Everything we do empowers one kingdom or another. And when we get out from under authority, we are still empowering a spiritual kingdom. Okay, that's, that's probably all I'll say about that. As long as we stay under the designated authority that God's put over us, and I'm not talking about you know the churches in the 70s that would tell you what kind of car to buy and tell you who to marry. I'm, not ta I'm just saying, understand submission. Maybe I should say, no. Nah. Yeah, I better say it because I brought it up. We, we teach some of this in our class on spiritual abuse. Here's what I want you to understand. Submission is an act of the submitter, not an act of the one in, in authority. Does that make sense? Submission is an act of the one submitting, not the domination of the one in authority. It's a, it's a willful choice to give yourself to somebody. It's not that person taking dominion or domination over them. Right. Right. All right. I've really backed myself into a corner here. I'll just keep going. Our authority is in the name of Jesus. I want to talk about this for a second and help help you understand something. The name of Jesus is also the name of Yeshua. Is also the name of Jesus, and there are other languages in which it sounds differently. Two syllables do not make magic. Okay, well, let me say it again. The two syllables, J-E and S-U-S, are not a magic formula to get God to go along with what you wanted. 
You understand what I'm saying now? What happens a lot of times is because we understand this idea that we've been given authority in the name of Jesus, we think if we tag his name on at the end of the sentence, God is now obligated to do what we just said. Here's, here's what this means. If I, trying to figure out who I know well enough to give my credit card to, Rich, yeah. If I were to give Rich my credit card and Rich goes down to the grocery store to get me you know, a gallon of half and half for tomorrow's coffee... <laughs> It takes a lot to get my coffee good. He's going down there in the name of Bob because on that credit card is the name that says, I'll back up what he spends. Does that make sense? It, it's not that he goes there and says, goes to the grocery store and says, hey, Bob says give me the whole store. He's going based on my assignment with my resources and anything outside of my assignment, he no longer has my resources. So what happens to us is we get into what I call Christian superstition, which is if I use the right phrases, God is bound. Listen, God is bound by none of us. There's not a formula to get God to obey. The formula is how does God get us to submit? And the name of Jesus is I'm the one who saves you by being your Lord. When you do what I'm sending you to do, I'm there to back it up. Now, he's, he's very good about this kind of thing, but let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about by Christian superstition. Um, there's a young girl who came to one of these classes actually several years ago, and her husband pushed her up to the front of class when class ended. And she, she, he pushed her up there, and she comes up, she goes, okay, okay, I'll talk to him. And she said, every night when I go to my room, there's a demon in my room. Now, again, I don't know everybody in here, and I don't know your backgrounds. Let me tell you what she meant. She didn't see anything with her eyes, but she sensed an evil presence in her room. And she felt cold, and she felt afraid, and she felt terrified to go into her room because she sensed a presence. I agree that there was a demon in her room, so I'm not saying there wasn't. I'm just saying it wasn't, you know, like a gremlin sitting in the corner next to her Furby. <laughs> um, and, and, she, and here's what she said. She said, every night since I was 15, I went to camp and I went and I heard all these scary stories at camp. And every night since then, there's been a demon in my room. Now listen to what she said next. I've done everything I'm supposed to, but it won't go away. What do you think she meant when she said, I've done everything I'm supposed to? Not only, not only does she pray every night, she prays in King James. <laughs> and she uses phrases like, get thee behind me. In the name of Jesus, I adjure thee. <laughs> remember, remember that one? That's a King James from the book of Acts. <laughs> so, anyway, she's, she's using all these phrases, and what she's saying is, I've used the name of Jesus, and it doesn't work. Listen, that's not a possibility. She's not using the name of Jesus. She's using English. <laughs> Everybody with me? You understand what I'm saying? Here's, let me, this question Helped, I think, helps most of us kind of sort through this. So here's what she says. I'm, I'm assured, I'm, for 10 years now, every time I go to my room, there's an evil presence, there's a demon in my room. I'm as sure as can be that when I go there tonight, it's going to be there too. Kind of like the thunder, huh? It's a nice effect. And so here's the question I asked her. I said, I said, are you at least equally sure that Jesus will also be in your room tonight? And she looked at me like I had monkeys flying out of my nose. I mean, she... It had not occurred to her in that entire decade once to consider that Jesus was actually present in her room. 
Operating in the name, name of Jesus means operating with the assurance of who he is in us and who we are in him. And that assurance allows me to act in confidence that he has sent me on a mission that he will empower. And part of that mission means to take dominion over this creation. And that means that I can walk into a room and understand that if he wants me in that room, and, and he wants that room for his creation, that I can walk in there and go, you know what, this whole room is the dominion that he's given me tonight. What did we pray when we started? Anything that would distract us or deceive us tonight, that would keep us from hearing God's word, we take dominion over it tonight. Nothing fancy, no formula. To, I'm just saying, hey, three-year-olds, sit down and be quiet. I'm the teacher tonight. Not, not you guys. I'm talking about anything that would keep us from learning together. You understand? So it just means I understand who I am and who he is in me, and based on that, I'm going to say, I have the right to say this is my territory. That, okay, so the name of Jesus means the person of Jesus in me, not a phrase or a syllable that I tack on to the end of a sentence. Of what? Her? I never saw her again, so I don't know. I'm hoping she went home and took authority over her room. <laughs> so, all right. Spiritual warfare. Wow. Spiritual warfare. I told you we'd come to this verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Um, once again, this is one of these places where I just think that we get into some superstitions as Christians in this thing that we call spiritual warfare because what we like, here's what we like as, as people. As people, we like formulas. We like life to be predictable and we like to know how it's going to turn out. If, we, if this and this, then that. And so we want to apply that stuff to the kingdom of God and it doesn't always work that way. Spiritual warfare is not a formula that if we get it right, we always win. Spiritual warfare, by the way, first and foremost, is a war that we always win. We just simply don't lose. But let's talk about that for a second. Second, <laughs> 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, or some translations say strongholds. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. Remember what we said earlier, obedience and agreement are the same word here. Now here's what I want you to understand. If we back up for a second... <clears throat> The term strong, fortresses or strongholds means a structure. And specifically here, Paul's referring to a specific kind of structure in the human soul. We can read all kinds, there's all kinds of great definitions of strongholds, but the funny thing is Paul gives it to us right here. Here's what he's trying to destroy. Speculations. Let me tell you what a speculation is. A speculation is a sequence of thought based on logic and reason responding to evidence. Let me say it again. It's a sequence of thoughts based on logic and reason in response to evidence. In other words, what I see, I apply reason and logic to, and I begin to wander down the pathways of my mind based on those two things. Now let me ask a question. Who's in charge of evidence during this age? Let me give you another. Here's what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. Satan, the little g, God of this age, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. Who's in charge of evidence in this age? Satan uses the natural world to try to inform us so that we'll speculate based on our natural thought processes and develop a, a version of reality that's entirely material and has nothing to do with the invisible world. 
So we're, Paul's tearing down these speculative processes based on, on physical evidence and tearing down every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Listen to me carefully. This is what I said a minute ago, but don't miss this. God cannot, well, let me say it the other way, Satan cannot fight against God. The reason we can't lose is because Satan can't fight against God. Okay, maybe you're not hearing what I'm saying. Satan, I'm not saying Satan can't win against God. I'm saying it's impossible for him to fight against God. Here's why. Because God is God. He makes reality what it is. So he rewrites the rules as he goes. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. God's chosen people, the Israelites, are, are camped at the edge of the Red Sea. And Satan looks and he goes, Aha! I've got God's people right where I want them. He brings the, Israel, the Egyptian army up over the hills, and you know, with all their weapons and all of their chariots, he says, I'm going to kill God's people because I've got them right in my sights. They're completely trapped. Now, let me ask a question. In that moment, who's being attacked? The Egyptians. Because what we understand, because we can read the whole story today, is who dies? The Egyptians. Therefore, who's being attacked in that moment is the Egyptians. They are, the, speculations would tell us they're the aggressors, they've got all the weapons, they've got the advantage, the Israelites are relatively unarmed and their back's up against the sea. They must, and by the way, here's one of the things, they, I'm sure they felt attacked. I'm sure their emotions and their perceptions and their speculations said, we're under attack. God's sitting up there going, no, you're not. See, the way I see this, the Egyptians are under heavy attack and they don't stand a chance. And the Israelites are going, ah, you know, what, what do we do? God says, be still and watch my deliverance. Moses sticks the staff in the water or holds it up, the water parts, and the very thing that was once their trap becomes the thing that defeats their enemy. Does this make sense? Because God writes the rules, it's impossible for the devil to fight against him. It's not just that he can't win. Let me give you one other illustration. Okay. Now, God himself enters the, the human arena in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, stands there in a human body. And Satan looks and goes, Aha! I've got him! Now that God's in the human arena, I can kill him. So he marshals all of his weaponry, all of his strength, all of the evil of the world, takes all of the evil of the world, heaps it on the body of Jesus. In that moment, who's under attack? Satan. It's almost like God gets to win no matter what Satan does. You see that he can't even fight against him because Satan doesn't understand the reality that God operates in. Everything he does to defeat God becomes his own defeat. Because of that, because Satan can't even fight against God, he does the next best thing he knows to do, and that is he attacks those whom God loves. And what he wants to do Listen, what are we destroying? Speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So Satan's trying to get us to define reality based on our logic and our perceptions and to believe lies about who God really is. So he takes our experiences and says to us, 
God's not going to care for you. He's going to abandon you. In fact, he already did. Listen carefully. I'm going to define spiritual warfare for you in one sentence. Spiritual warfare is the battle in which you choose which voice to listen to in the midst of your experiences. Let me say it again. It's the battle in which you choose which voice to listen to in the midst of your experiences. Yeah, I like the backup there. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Here's the thing. You come out of your house on Sunday morning all dressed and ready for church and your tire's flat. And it just drives me nuts. Man, the spiritual warfare was so intense today. My tire was flat. And I'm going to tell you this. Your tire being flat on the way to church is not spiritual warfare. If you listen to the devil about your flat tire, now, now it's spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? It may very well be that God comes along and gets some young kid to stick a knife in your tire because he knows that you've got a neighbor who's not going to church tomorrow and he's got a new uh, you know, tire patch kit and he can come along and help you and your neighbor happens to need to hear what you have to say to him. You know, let's, let's give God a little bit more credit here. He could have protected your tire. You know, here's the thing. Spiritual warfare is the choice about which voice you'll listen to. No. Were you going to say more than that? Yeah. No, the Holy Spirit is God's voice to us, which means we need to move faster so I can get back to that. Is that where you're heading, Randall? Yeah, okay, he's going, don't miss that part. Okay, so I want you to catch this. <clears throat> the, the worst moment in your life the devil wants to talk to you about the worst thing that ever happened to you. The devil wants to talk to you about it, but so does God. He wants to keep telling you about it. He wants to keep telling you that that's who you are, that's the source of your identity, that that defines who you are in the world. And God also wants to talk to you about that to say, that, that happened to you, but that's not the source of your identity. The question in spiritual warfare is not the circumstances, but which voice we will empower Spiritual forces are empowered by agreement in the human heart. That makes sense? We either agree, obey, remember agreement and obedience are the same thing, with God and what he's declaring about a moment, or we agree and obey what the enemy's telling us. And whichever one we agree with, we empower on earth. Now, I really, you're right, Randolph, we do need to get to, let's back up, and we'll end with this thing with the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because remember, we're back in the transformation section. And I'm going to start by just telling you a story about me. I was raised in a non-church background, and what I mean by that is my family didn't go to church anywhere except for one year, and that was, you know, because we like donuts. Um, <laughs> that's the truth. Um, and so when I was 16, a couple of guys loved me enough to share the gospel with me. And the Lord loved me enough to get that through to my heart. And at that point in time, I was saved, and I began to be discipled in a Baptist church. Now, before you go, oh, I'm so sorry, 
You know, because depending on what your background is, some people think, oh, the, the poor Baptists. Listen, what I got from the Baptist church, I will cherish the rest of my life because I got a couple things. Number one, I got a great foundation in Scripture and a great foundation in valuing seeking God's direction in my life in any way that I could. Second thing I'll tell you is that every Baptist church that I was a part of was one of those Baptist churches that were always starting to discover that God wanted to do more than they'd been allowing him to do. So when I think of the Baptist church, other people you know, often think of kind of a dead, lifeless denomination. That's not my experience of the Baptist church, but nor was it a fully engaged, charismatic experience. It was always kind of a, a teeter-totter kind of experience. One day, um, I've now been a Christian for about a year and a half, two years, and a gentleman comes from Haiti. He's a missionary from Haiti, and man, he had some cool stories. He's the first guy I ever heard teach on hearing God, and it's in a session that he did that, um, that I heard the Lord tell me to move to Texas. So by the way, you ought to thank him, I hope. Unless you didn't like tonight's class, then you go, that darn guy from Haiti. You know, but without him, I might have still been in Michigan. Who knows? But um, I, I heard the Lord tell me to move down here. But he, he taught a lunchtime Bible study, and in that lunchtime Bible study, um, he's teaching on a particular passage, which I won't tell you because then you'll go out and try to reproduce what happened to me. Okay? He's teaching on this particular passage of Scripture, and all of a sudden, something happened to me. All of a sudden, it's like I felt warmth come from my head to my toes, and I felt like almost like power come into my body. And I began to see things differently than I'd seen them before. And I began to understand things that I didn't understand before. And what I really didn't know is that from that day forward, more would start to, I'd start to know things and not know why I knew them. And I'd start to be able to read scripture and understand things in there that I couldn't see there before. And I, could, I started to pray for people and start to see things happen, effective things happen in people's bodies and minds and, and lives when I'd pray for them. Now, no one taught me the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what do you think happened to me that day? On that day, without a doubt, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I didn't learn that phrase till years later. Here's why I'm telling you this story. Is anyone concerned that maybe I didn't really receive it because I didn't know the phrase? Is that all right with everybody? Everybody good with that? Okay. God's not limited by the English language. Okay. Here's what I want you to catch. If it's possible for me to receive the experience without the language, isn't it also possible that some people have the language but not the experience? You guys are such a friendly group. Thank you for not throwing things at me. But here's what I want you to catch. that you know, my, I have a very, very good friend who has said this to me on more than one occasion. Um, they say, I have failed at the baptism of the Holy Spirit about four or five times now. And what they mean by that is they've gone down in an altar ministry setting where somebody just extended an invitation to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they didn't meet the expectations of the altar minister. That's what it means. And themselves, because, yes, clearly both. But what I want you to catch is that we do this thing to each other in the Christian world where we put labels on experiences and requirements and expectations on each other, and then we, we measure each other by those things. Listen, I'm not going to go through the, the verses are in your notes, but I, want, I don't want to go through all of them. But what I want you to catch is that Jesus says this to the disciples in the book of Acts. He says, wait here. I'm going to go up to the Father, but you stay here until he, until he baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, here's the thing. Keep in mind that the disciples had no idea what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. So in Acts chapter 2, when it comes, and, and comes along, they had no idea how to help God. Thank you for thinking that's funny. I think that's hilarious. Because what, here's what happens, whether it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit or any other move of God's Spirit, is we see God do it once, and then we think we should help him from that point on now that we know what he wants to do. Remember, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He wants to do things that are beyond our expectations and beyond our ability to comprehend. And so what, what we need to understand is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was given to us so that we could receive power to do the work of God here on earth. And sometimes it looks like this, and sometimes it looks like that, and sometimes it manifests itself in that way. Let me give you the official stance at Gateway Church on the, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the official stance, then we're going to talk man to man and woman for a couple moments. Okay? The official stance is this, that we believe in the gift of tongues, but we do not believe it is the only evidence that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everybody understand what I just said? If you have a question, this is a good time to ask. We believe in the gift of tongues. I, I, I pray in tongues often and regularly, and it's very helpful to me. And, and so don't think this is about me and something I do or don't do. I want you to understand that, but I want you to understand. What we believe here is that the evidence that you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that from that point forward, you begin to see an increase in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let me say it again, that from the point where you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, from that day forward, you will begin to see an increase in the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life. Does that make sense to everybody? Sometimes it's immediate and there's a sudden noticeable effect, and sometimes it's a quiet, peaceful thing that that's like a seed that grows over the days ahead, that the spirit inside of you, just like Randolph said a minute ago, you begin to hear and recognize and discern things that you couldn't have done without the Holy Spirit. And so we want you to understand that we believe the Holy Spirit wants to fill you, but I also want you to understand that these guys that receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, a few chapters later, sorry, a few chapters later, they received him again. So understand that it's kind of like a glass of milk. When do you get enough? Well, you can keep pouring and keep pouring and keep pouring as long as you've got Oreos. Bad illustration, but so listen, the Holy Spirit, here, here's what we believe. Let me give you one other bad illustration and tell you what we believe and then let's step into this. Um, <clears throat> just like I've had people say, I went through deliverance 10 years ago, I hear people say, I got the baptism of the Holy Spirit 20 years ago and thank you, I'm so, so glad that you did. But my question is, are you still walking under his rulership today? Or did you receive it again this morning? In other words, the Spirit-filled life is not about an experience that you had 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. It's about an ongoing experience of the ongoing infilling of the Holy Spirit to empower you for now and, and tomorrow. And the reason I said that about sometimes we have the language, I use the, or I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, but not the experience, is we had something that happened 20 years ago, but today we're walking in our own strength. I need it again today. I'm going to need it again in the morning. I, I need to constantly be filled up so that I can be allowing the Lord to fill me and allowing him to operate through me. Otherwise, all you get is me. So let me give you a quick story, and then we'll pray and then be done. You know, 
part of what's happened to us is because we can be soulish creatures, we pursue an experience instead of a person. The Holy Spirit is a person who wants to fill God's people. And if we start looking for an experience, we start saying, well, Bob, you know, it's one of the reasons I didn't tell you which verse the guy was teaching because I don't want you to go, you know, study 1 Corinthians, nah, 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 because so that you can have the experience I did. Don't have my experience, have your experience. And you shouldn't have her experience, you should have your experience. You should encounter, you should let the Holy Spirit make you, you, and empower you to be who he's created you to be. But what happens is we, we pursue an experience and we start to be let down because it wasn't like that person or like that altar minister or like I thought it should be. So the story is about, it's a fictional story, it's a preacher story, which means it didn't really happen, I don't think. But it goes like this. And it's 8.59, I apologize that we're at this point. You are welcome to leave if you want. I'm going to keep going, but if you're going to leave, do so quietly. And I apologize for the lateness of the hour, but I, I, I don't want to do without this part. Okay? The story goes like this. There's a man who was seeking an encounter with the Holy Spirit that would completely transform his life. And he, like my friend, had failed several different times, failed several different times. And so he's looking, and somebody tells him, I know a guy who knows a place where everybody who goes there has this absolutely overwhelming, life-transforming infilling of the Holy Spirit. And the guy says, well, where is this guy? And they said, well, he's over at this place on the top of this mountain. So the guy starts trekking over to the mountain. <clears throat> he comes up to the top, and sure enough, here's this guy sitting here in the mountain. And the guy walks up to him, and he says, um, Somebody tells me that you know a place that everybody who goes there receives a radical infilling of the Holy Spirit. And the guy looks at him and, you know, clearly this man is a rabbi because, or a therapist because he doesn't answer him. He just asks a question. He says, if I knew of such a place, would you go? And the man says, of course I would. And the man again doesn't answer. He just jumps up and starts running down the side of the mountain. This guy's so surprised, he's like, where's he going? So he starts running behind him. But this guy's, you know, for an old guy sitting on the hill, he's, he's way ahead of him. So he's trying to catch up to him. This guy gets down to the bottom of the hill, and he's headed across the plain. And this guy's doing everything he can to catch up. And next thing he knows, this guy plunges into the briar patch. Remember the briar patch? He plunges, different story, but works for tonight. Plunges into the briar patch and starts, you know, clawing his way through it. And this guy's like, oh my gosh, how am I going to catch up to him? So he gets there about 100 yards behind him, and he plunges in, and his, his arms are being scratched, and his face is being scratched. Now his lungs are, you know, he's just breathing hard, and he's like, how am I ever going to catch up to this guy? He comes out the other side of the briar patch and sees the guy's three-quarters of the way across a raging river. He's like, <laughs> so he dives into the river, and he's doing everything he can. He gets to the other side, and again, his lungs are just pounding. His heart's pounding. Every muscle in his body is just aching. And he looks, and this man is halfway up the cliffs of insanity, which is another story also. But you know, he's halfway up these cliffs, and this guy's like, I, I don't even think I can climb cliffs. But you know, he wants to go where this, you know, so he starts climbing. He gets halfway up, and the guy is out of sight. And he, this guy realizes, I don't, I don't think I can get to the top of the cliff. His fingers are just scraped to the bone, and muscles are aching, and the muscles in his forearms, and every muscle in his body, his lungs are pounding. And he's like, I'm, I don't think I can make it. And bit by bit, he gets to the top, just one, one inch, one, you know, four-inch span at a time, he gets to the top, and he flings himself. This is not a very good podium for flinging yourself. He flings himself over the top, just collapses at the top, and he looks up, and there's the guy. And he looks at the guy and says, I just can't go any further. 
And the guy looks at him and says, then this is that place. See, here's what we do. We've made the Holy Spirit like a parlor game where we go, I'll get you, then you get me. Zap, zap. And we, you know, we make it about, you know, give me some, you give me some. And here's what happens. That's what we get. But when we come to the place where we can say, I can't go any further, he says, then this is the place. As long as we're willing to operate on our own capabilities, on our own strength, as long as we're willing to go one step further, he's going, all right, let me know when you need something. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we don't see more power is because we try to operate in so much of our own. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us to fill us up to do what it's impossible for us to do. What if we think we can do it all? But the opposite of that is what if we come to the point where we go, what if I can't do anything? What if I have no power in me and I've just been fooling myself all this time? What we want to do to end the night is this. We want to give you a chance to get honest enough to say to God, here's, here's what's left of me. You might already, you know, you might be here because you're at that place where you're going, I got nothing left. And, and be honest. You might be at a place where you're going, no, I could probably go another mile or two. <laughs> be honest. But ask God for what you need. And we're going to end the night asking the Lord to fill us up. So just be still and take a moment to say, Lord, Here's what I need from you. It's not a power game. It's not a religious trick. It's not an altar ministry moment where I've got to live up to somebody else's expectation. If, if you need something from him, tell him. And maybe the very thing you need is to know how desperately you need something. It's okay to start there. But I just want you to get still enough to go, Lord, tonight, in these last few moments, I really did come because I need something. Or maybe I didn't come because I need something, but maybe I'm starting to, to realize I really need more than I've got. So I'm going to pray. Again, we're later than we normally are. If you need to leave, please do, but please do so quietly. But if you want to stay, we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to fill us. At any point in this time that you need to leave, please do so quietly. But here's what we want to do. You just take a moment in your own heart, in your own words, to be able to say, Lord, I'm... I can't keep going. Or, Lord, I think I can keep going, but show me that I can't. Whatever level of honesty you want to bring to him tonight. And, Lord, we pray now that you'd pour your spirit out over us. We pray that you'd fill us tonight. Pray that where we've been empty, you would be our fullness. Where we've been tired, you would be our strength. Lord, come into the places in our heart. Where we're lacking. Come, Holy Spirit.
Stay in that place of prayer and listening, but just know that here's what he said. If you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more would I, your heavenly Father, give good gifts to you, even the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> that when we ask, we don't need to have something happen to prove to us. His promise is, you ask, I give. I also feel like this is a word for maybe several people tonight, and that is that as he fills you, he gives you power to do what you couldn't do before. But if you don't try, you won't know. If you've never tried to prophesy before and you don't try, you won't know that you can't. Can. If you've never opened up your mouth to pray in a heavenly language, you may not ever know that you can. Give him a chance to exercise gifts in you, believing that tonight when you ask, he fills you. So Father, would you by your Holy Spirit not only fill us, but tonight seal in us the things that you've given, the things that you've said. Empower us now to do and to hear and to act in the ways you've designed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.